Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for November 22nd, 2019. I'm going to be joined here in a minute or so by Branko Marcetic. Uh, Branko is a returning champion. He's been on the show a number of times uh, to talk about mostly things that he's written. Uh, he's a writer who uh, has done work for Jacobin, for In These Times, and uh, a number of other places. Uh, he's got a new piece at In These Times that I think helps to contextualize uh, one of the little discussed factors uh, in the coup in Bolivia earlier this month, uh, and that is the Organization of American States, uh, and specifically its leader, Luis Almagro, uh, and his shift from being seemingly a left or at least center-left politician uh, back in his early days in Uruguay, or earlier days, I guess, uh, into the reliable tool of the center-right consensus that he has become uh, as the head of the OAS. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk to Branco here in a moment about what the OAS is, uh, what it does, or what it's supposed to do, and then what it actually does. Uh, and we'll talk about uh, Almagro and his transformation sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a transformation or just a revelation, but we'll talk about that, uh, and how it's played into uh, the situation in Bolivia. Okay, I'm being joined by writer Branko Marcetic. Uh, Branko has done work for Jacobin in these times. Uh, Branko, feel free to fill in other places you've written for. Um, Branko's a returning champion. He's been with me several times here at this point. I've lost track. Uh, we have a, a wonderful gift for you. I, I have some old Tide Pods you can have or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, He's written a new piece uh, on Luis Almagro, the uh, head of the Organization of American States. Uh, and his, uh, I, I wanted to say transformation from a, a somebody who was politically on the left to somebody who was politically on the right, but I, I'm not sure if transformation is the right word, maybe just uh, kind of revealing true colors. Uh, but uh, he's played a, a key, but I think under-discussed role in the uh, situation in Bolivia. So Branco uh, is here to talk to us about Almagro and about the OAS and, and help put to put a little more context on the Bolivian story. Branko, thanks for, for being here. No, thanks for having me. Uh, this is, uh, being a vibe back is, is a gift enough. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the OAS has been involved in, in Bolivia, or was involved in, in what happened in Bolivia, the coup that ousted uh, Evo Morales, uh, from pretty much the beginning. I mean, if you go back to the October 20th election, this is kind of the, the, the way things went. Uh, Morales needed to win that election with uh, at least by at least a 10 point margin to avoid a runoff. Uh, what happened that night is Bolivian electoral authorities decided to stop what's called their quick count, uh, which is sort of the immediate kind of aftermath of the vote uh, with what looked like a, a situation where 
Morales and the the runner up Carlos Mesa were going to have to go to a runoff. Morales had uh, something like seven ish percent lead, I think. Uh, they stopped that on the the night of the election and then resumed the full count uh, the following day, uh, which turned out after you know bringing in uh, ballots from from uh, more remote areas of the country uh, that Morales. One, they declared him the victor by a bit over 10%, so enough to avoid uh, a runoff. At that point, the opposition started crying, you know, there's uh, uh, irregularities here, something's up, the count doesn't look right. Uh, and Morales, in a concession to the opposition, offered to allow the Organization of American States to come in and audit the election. It was at this point that I started to think, hmm, this isn't going to go well for Evo Morales, because the Organization for American States doesn't like leftist leaders in Latin America very much. Uh, and sure enough, the OAS determined uh, a couple of weeks later that after, you know, there'd been much kind of uh, many protests by the opposition and uh, Mesa calling for Morales to uh, resign outright and, you know, suggesting that he, he wasn't interested in waiting for the audit to come in. The Organization of American States determined on some basis that there had been flagrant cheating in the vote count. Uh, there's a paper that you mentioned in your piece that was done by uh, uh, CEPR, the left, uh, left-leaning left uh, uh, economic think tank in Washington, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, uh, that determined that there probably wasn't any shenanigans in the vote count and that, in fact, what happened was... Uh, Ballots came in from more remote areas of Bolivia as the the count went on, and uh, Morales's base is in those remote areas of Bolivia. So it was natural that his uh, vote margin would tick up as those ballots came in. Uh, nevertheless, uh, once the OAS made this claim that there was fraud, everything kind of uh, blew out, blew up into a, a, a bigger scandal, and there were. Uh, increasing demands that Morales go, increasing protests. The police stopped, uh, you know, monitoring the protests or, uh, you know, uh, which was sort of the precursor to the coup. And then the commander in chief of the Bolivian military kind of politely suggested that Morales might want to go, uh, at which he did. He resigned and went into exile in Mexico, where he still is. In the meantime, a hard right government has come into power and, uh, despite the fact that its only real mandate is to call for a new election, you have this uh, uh, new president, Janine Añez, who marched into the presidential office holding a giant comically oversized Bible, uh, who has behaved pretty much as a textbook uh, leader of a far-right regime change operation. Uh, she's doing things policy-wise to uh, change the Bolivian government, change Bolivian foreign policy, uh, things that she really doesn't have any mandate to do. In the meantime, there are negotiations going on about the election. Uh, so talk, uh, let's start with, without getting too far into Luis Almagro, talk about uh, your impressions of the role that the OAS played in this whole uh, fiasco. Well, one of the really key things is that even before I had uh, put out these this this report uh, claiming um, irregularities and, and, and uh, all manner of other shenanigans, 
the OAS had put out just a press release at first uh, with no evidence whatsoever, um, just sort of asserting that there were irregularities. I believe that the, word, the term that was used was uh, clear manipulations. And um, again, that was, that was, it was just a short press release, uh, d didn't have anything to back it up or follow it up. That came well after. Um, and that was really used by both the uh, opposition in Bolivia and, and particularly by the United States, by the Trump administration, which seized on that to, uh, to, to start putting pressure on Morales and to, to uh, you know, basically saying that he should resign and that kind of thing. Um, you also saw the media take it up. I mean, um, that's another really big thing is that the, the Western media, um, because the OAS does have, um, you know, a, a kind of oral legitimacy and, and sort of institutional influence, um, that press release was initially cited pretty widely um, and it's and its subsequent report to make claims about the election and also about uh, Morales himself as a, as a leader. Um, uh, more than... Definitely, I think the Wall Street Journal just outright called him a, a dictator, um, not even using the sort of traditional, well, we'll just, we'll just put this in the, in the mouths of the opposition, this um, you know, completely outrageous claim. Um, so the OAS has, has been important. And, uh, and yeah, that's really the role that it's, it's played uh, under Almagro. And, and I won't get into, into him that much yet, but, you know, there, there was there's talk about because the U.S. Uh, and, and right wing lawmakers in particular, they're disappointed that the OAS is no longer under the, uh, the, the thumb and the control of the U.S. It used to be that the OAS was um, dominated uh, by the United States during the Cold War. They, they expelled Cuba, for example, at the very beginning, um, even, even though a whole host of uh, <laughs> countries that were less friendly, less than friendly to, to human rights and democracy would stay in. Um, they, they got rid of Cuba because they said the, you know, it's, it's Marxist-Leninist philosophy is not, uh, is not compatible with the OAS. Um, and then the US over the course of decades would just sort of repeatedly uh, make a mockery of the OAS. You know, the, the, the OAS's charter says that one member state can't uh, attack another member state. The US has obviously done that. <laughs> several times, um, you know, uh, Reagan invaded Granada, for example, and just sort of found this, I mean, to call it a loophole is generous, but, you know, he said, oh, well, there's this other agreement that we signed that says we can do, we can invade, so this is fine. Um, and, but, but around after the Cold War, and, and especially once the uh, pink tide uh, started washing over Latin America, you saw a waning of, of U.S. influence over the OAS, even though the U.S. continued to uh, to to provide the lion's share of its funding. Um, at this point, I think it's only like sixty percent uh, as of twenty eighteen, but it was always the vast vast majority. And then Canada did the next next most, and then I, I can't remember what else after that. Um, but also during the two thousands, with uh, Chavez's election, you had um, uh, these other organizations popping up that were that were made as a sort of counterweight uh, to the OAS um, and its US influence. And also uh, the other key thing is that uh, one, these Pintai governments were a lot more likely to rebel against the US and also uh, Chavez um, you know was, was very generous with his uh, with his oil uh, which made these countries a lot less dependent on the US. 
So the U.S. overall lost its influence in the OAS, but it continued to fund it. And so um, it's sort of for, for you know hawkish or, or right-wing uh, officials in the U.S., it's very frustrating. It's like, why are we giving all this money when getting nothing in return? Um, you know, I mean, not that the OAS is meant to be an instrument of U.S. influence, but that's the way they they see it. They see it as, oh, this, is, this is our thing. You know, this isn't meant to be the U.N. of the Americas. This is just a thing for us to get our way. Um, so what's, what happens, or what has happened in the uh, 21st century, and, and especially now under Almagro, is that the U.S. kind of strategically uses the OAS. So um, it, it, every now and then, mo- most of the OAS, OAS's work is non-political, non-ideological, but in key moments, the U.S. will exert influence uh, to get what it wants. Um, and actually, CEPR, uh, one of the economists, Mark uh, Weisbrot, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing properly there, uh, he talked about, um, uh, in, in regards to this Bolivia situation, how in 2011, and I believe in, in I'm going to get the day wrong here, but in the 2000s, uh, it was in 2000, in fact, so 2011 and 2000, um, the, uh, the elections in Haiti, uh, the OAS played a similar role as they did in Bolivia, where they basically came in and they said, with, with no real evidence, uh, you know, this election was, uh, had irregularities, it was manipulated, and um, and and something needs to be. We have to do elections or what have you. And then this was used as a, as a basis to kind of undermine uh, the government, which was official U.S. policy at the time. Um, and and also in two thousand nine, um, in the coup in Honduras, uh, Hillary Clinton actually brags about this in her memoir. Um, perhaps that has been deleted uh, in in the uh, post twenty fifteen edition. I don't know, but she brags about how. Um, she she leaned on the OAS to support new elections in Honduras before uh, the Honduran president, the ousted Honduran president, was allowed to return, and that way it would make his return uh, moot, in her words, because it would it would force the elections to happen and sideline him. So leading up to this, the OAS has has even under waning U.S. influence over the organization has um, been. Uh, strategically leaned on in particular points uh, to be able to get a desired outcome uh, that U.S. Uh, policymakers prefer. So let's, yeah, sort of, you know, there's sort of a shift from uh, the OAS during the Cold War as kind of an arm of American foreign policy, more or less, too. Like, we use it when we need it, and otherwise we kind of ignore it. Um, but let's talk about, uh, Almagro, uh, who is the subject of your piece. And, uh, uh, first, you know, talk a little bit about his background, uh, in Uruguay and, and, you know, where he was, uh, a politician of at least the center left, if not, you know, the left left, um, you know, and which kind of sets the table for, uh, the way he's operated the OAS and, and the, the kind of turn the or transformation that you're, you've written about. So Almagro started out as, you know, on the political right in Uruguay. He actually was part of a uh, movement that was pro-amnesty for the uh, Uruguay military that had um, really ruled in the country. Um, and uh, then uh, in the early 2000s, uh, 
he he did a switch basically. He um he joined the uh the Broad Front it was called, which is this coalition of um of kind of leftist, progressive lefty uh parties in Uruguay that, that formed one big coalition. Um and he entered government under that. He was um under uh under Jose Muritza. He was his uh his foreign minister um from two thousand ten uh until twenty fifteen, which is when he joined the well, he became head of the OAS, uh, and and you know under Muitza, and and this caused a lot of alarm for people on the right in in the US and elsewhere uh, when he was nominated to, to lead the OAS because they saw him as a sort of typical uh, chavista pink tide kind of lefty. So um, he, for example, had been uh, very supportive of actually revoking the amnesty. So you know. A 180 degree change from what he had started out in politics um, supporting. Um, and he was very critical of Israel. Um, he, for example, when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed uh, in, in 2011, uh, he said uh, something along the lines of, you know, well, no death should be celebrated. Uh, and, and he was also, he had, he had served in the embassy in Tehran. So um, there was all this kind of People darkly intoned when he was nominated to head the OAS, you know, oh, he has ties to Iran, you know, he has, because he has served as, a, as an ambassador there. <laughs> he converted yeah, to Shia. Very shady. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then also, you know, he he had been friendly to Venezuela because that was the official uh, policy of the, um, of the Muita government. Um, and uh, he, he had praised Chavez for... Uh, you know, transforming Venezuela, and he also um, had actually appeared with uh, Maduro not long, I think, before he was nominated, where they were kind of, they had their arms around each other and that kind of thing. Then uh, he becomes head of the OAS, which, which the Uruguayan government um, probably put a lot of pressure or, or used a lot of sort of influence and, and political capital to actually get him in there. Um, and he ends up being elected. Uh, again, you know, lamentations of war and, and alarm from the right. Uh, but within maybe five, six months, he starts getting very aggressive uh, on Venezuela. You know, this guy who had been feared to be this uh, this unreconstructed chavista suddenly is is saying in the in the run up of the uh, in the uh, no, sorry the, the twenty sixteen elections. And Venezuela is saying that they're going to be, uh, you know, the, the, there's already signs of irregularities, that the, there's already signs that it's going to be rigged, that there's huge problems. He's sort of pushing this narrative, it strains the relationship with Venezuela. The elections end up happening, and despite all these warnings, the opposition wins in a landslide, um, which of course triggers this whole crisis in Venezuela because uh, Maduro reacts um, by a, a series of kind of Undemocratic, uh, authoritarian ways to to stop a an opposition as a, a virulent uh, and and very uh, at times violent opposition. Um, so anyway, that that's all happening in the background. Um, and, even and then, even before that, I I wanted to to uh, get you to talk about this little bit in your your story. Even before the uh, Almagro sort of shifted on Venezuela during his transition 
to head the OAS. Uh, you write about his uh, appointment of uh, Dan Restrepo to his transition team. Uh, and I think that's an interesting connection. Can you talk a little bit about who he is and, and what that suggested? Yeah, thanks actually for reminding me about that. So that yeah, he was heading uh, Almagro's transition to the OAS. Uh, Restrepo is a Center for American Progress, a uh, longtime uh, figure. I think he's a senior fellow. I think that's his official title. He also, uh, perhaps even more saliently, was the uh, sort of Obama administration uh, guy on Latin America. He was he was the guy that Obama was listening to uh, when it came to. Uh, his Latin American policy. So, um, and of course, you know, Center for American Progress, uh, needless to say, uh, is far from anything to do with progress. And is, unless the progress you're talking about is the uh, many, many large corporations that fund it, which, as we know, uh, have been salivating at the idea of, of, of being able to access the vast natural resources of Latin America, whether and especially when it's blocked uh, from easy access by um, leftist governments that uh, are intent to keep all that wealth and profit for, uh, for, for themselves and their own people. Um, but beyond that, uh, Restrepo is also a, uh, I'm going to get the title wrong here, but he, he's, he works for uh, Jones Walker, which is this um, lawyer lobbying firm um, in D.C., and uh, it, it doesn't say who his clients are, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, uh, it's, not, it's not surprising they want to keep that secret. But the, the exact phrase that they use to, to uh, describe who he actually works for, and I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm doing this off memory, so I can't remember the exact phrasing, but basically it's just every sort of corporate interest that might have a... Um, a, a, a uh, interest in opening up Venezuela or uh, even Bolivia to uh, international corporate exploitation. Um, and if you look at some of Jones Walker's lobbying clients, you can sort of get a taste of, of the kinds of firms that they represent. You know, a lot of it is like oil exploration and big banks like, uh, like JP Morgan Chase and, and that kind of thing. Um, so already, I mean, I mean, I think this is the other thing, the key, the other key thing to, to remember is that this didn't start under Trump. I mean, uh, Trump obviously really, really went balls to the wall to try and actually uh, force regime change in Venezuela. But um, the Obama administration have been pushing, have been putting pressure, not not nearly to the same degree as Trump, but but they were not exactly happy with having uh, Maduro in power in Venezuela, nor I think to have. Uh, to, to have someone like Chavez either, um, as the response to the Honduran coup, I think, kind of um, illustrates. Um, and so uh, the fact that Obama's uh, kind of Latin American policy advisor is the guy who ends up transitioning um, or helping uh, the transition from Almagro into the OAS is kind of a, a, an ill omen of what was to come because, um, you know, if you, if Almagro was really a, this committed Chavista, would he, would he go to, uh, the same country, um, that, that has had an antagonistic relationship with Chavez from the moment that he was elected, um, and, and ask them to sort of staff and shape, 
uh, his uh, his tenure at the OAS. Mm, doubtful. <laughs> yeah, that seems seems unlikely. Uh, okay, so let's go let's go back to Venezuela and and talk about um, you kind of contrast in the piece uh, the way that Almagro handled Venezuela's political crisis in 2016. Uh, his relationship, for example, with Leopoldo Lopez, and maybe we can talk a little bit about who he is and uh, why that's interesting, uh, with their sort of pro forma denouncement of the uh, the move to kind of railroad Dilma Rousseff out of office in Brazil, uh, which was equally, I think, or, you know, uh, along the same lines, if you're concerned about uh you know, rule of law and democracy is at least equally as egregious. But the OAS's uh, sort of rhetoric about what happened to Dilma was like, this seems to be improper. Where meanwhile, they're like writing mash notes to Lopez in Venezuela and like talking about how, what a champion of democracy is and what an awful, vile thing is happening here. And, uh, you know, so talk about talk a little bit about about that. Yeah, so uh, um in, in Venezuela, obviously, you have this ongoing political crisis uh, between, um, you know, the right-wing opposition and, and Maduro. But also, I mean, Maduro, it's not as if Maduro has just overwhelming support. I mean, uh, even people on the left in Venezuela are not happy with him. So, you know, so it's, a, it's a classic political crisis. Maduro doesn't want to leave power um, for, I think, multiple reasons. Um, in theory, the OAS's role in this uh, scenario should be to try and uh, mediate between the different parties and, and create some sort of political settlement. I mean, the OAS is basically meant to be a kind of United Nations for that part of the world. Um, you know, every has 34 member states. Um, they're all meant to vote on, on certain resolutions that are passed and that kind of thing and what actions they take. So, you know, the head of the OAS should really be taking a, a kind of diplomatic role here and, try, and trying to uh, bring this to some sort of solution. Instead, Almagro opts for this very uh, bullish, very inflammatory course of action where he basically sides with the Venezuelan right-wing opposition, which, you know, uh, I mean, they themselves are very violent um, and anti-democratic. I mean, a lot of those people... Um, was were also very much in support of, of the coup against Chavez in, in 2002. Um, but Almagro takes their side. You know, he's, he's meeting with opposition leaders, uh, most notably uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who um, to whom he he writes this this letter, and I, I believe 2017. This just overwrought, uh, corny letter that is just um, you know telling him about his his great and esteemed friend Leopoldo, how he's in jail and how, uh, you know, there's no better example of greatness in, in Venezuela's current uh, dire times than Lopez, who is, you know, casting him as almost this Nelson Mandela figure who's, you know, he's been jailed for, for his, his love of democracy or what have you. I mean, and, and to be fair, Lopez, um, from all indications, the, the, the prosecution of Lopez um, and his house arrest was politically motivated, so let's not get that. Wrong. I mean, uh, one of the guys actually involved in the prosecution later fled, and he said, "Yeah, that it was all it was it was bullshit, basically the charge against him." However, at the same time, that doesn't mean that Lopez himself is is uh, some sort of champion of democracy. Um, and and Lopez 
played a role and was supportive of the 2002 coup against Chavez. Um, he has ties to Republican officials back home and uh, well, back in the U.S. and um, and and uh, he was even described even even uh, in a diplomatic cable actually as sort of this, this power hungry vindictive person. Um, so you know, not not exactly someone who actually is a champion of democracy, just maybe someone who hates the uh, left wing regime uh, put, put in place first by Chavez and then, and then Maduro. Uh, but nonetheless, Almagro, you know, he has private phone conversations with him. He, he constantly praises him publicly while, while calling Maduro a, a dictator and a little tyrant. Not exactly the most diplomatic language. I mean, you can't imagine the United Nations General Secretary uh, deciding to to uh, settle a political conflict in some war-torn country somewhere in the world by by just going in and and, and having a, a food fight with the uh, with its leader. Um, and, and this kind of goes on, you know, uh, uh, Almagro really pushed to try and get the, get Venezuela expelled from the OAS, uh, and, and to have this resolution passed against it, um, that basically sort of said it would, they would take, you know, some vague measures against it. What, what exactly that means, it's not clear because the Venezuela, I mean, the OAS charter, obviously, precludes um, any actual uh, uh, meddling in the internal affairs of member states. But but this is a big push by him. Um, also, he put out, you know, he puts out reports, uh, long, long, very detailed, large reports about how democracy is dying in Venezuela, is always putting out a public statement, you know, whenever there's a clash between um, security forces and um, protesters, uh, you know, blaming the government for um, for killing people and, and really sort of painting it in this very one-sided way uh, as, as if it's just sort of this Venezuelan dictatorship that is stabbing down on the, um, on the rights of, of, of peaceful, uh, freedom-loving protesters, which is a vast oversimplification, uh, to say the least. Um, and, and this is all working in concert. Once Trump comes, comes into power, uh, he, he starts really... Uh, almost teaming up with with the Trump administration, this far right racist administration that, that Almagro has has kind of lightly criticized before for um, its treatment of migrants. Um, but you know, especially you saw that in 2019, once the Guaido uh, situation happens. Um, <laughs> but the Guaido situation sounds like some uh, like a 90s thriller or something like. A, <laughs> Jack Ryan novel. Well, it, yeah, it's the plot of Jack Ryan's uh, the Jack. That's Ryan's right. Actually, yeah, it's not even the nineties. It's two thousand nineteen, sadly. Um, but he starts. Uh, you, you know, he he recognizes Guaido as the official kind of uh, leader of Venezuela. Um, at one point, he actually even calls for uh, when Guaido rallied um, military supporters uh, in Caracas and on April thirtieth. Almagro kind of celebrated it on Twitter and he said, you know, this is, uh, it's good to see the military kind of, you know, having its fidelity to democracy or whatever, you know, sort of a, a very uh, light insinuation that, that the military <laughs> should rebel. Um, and then nothing, uh, nothing and, and signals your support for democracy more than a military coup. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, uh, he is very, 
scathing of when, when uh, the UN uh, Commission on, on Human Rights, um, who used to be actually uh, the president of Chile, when she puts out a statement saying that the Trump administration's um, uh, 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 sanctions, uh, which really are horrendous and, and, and awful and, and murderous, um, have can have exacerbated the economic crisis that already existed in Venezuela and made it, you know, magnitudes worse. Um, uh, Almagro hits back very kind of um, angrily, you know, saying that this is an appeasement of a dictator and, uh, you know, it's ridiculous to suggest that, that Trump's sanctions have had any, any kind of effect. I mean, I will also say that the CEPR, um, again, Mark Weisbrot, he actually did a uh, analysis of this and um, they found that uh, the sanctions uh, caused something like 40,000 extra deaths in, um, in Venezuela and uh, over, over 27, I think actually over 2018. Um, and, and also Amagro by the end is actually just calling for outright uh, military intervention. He's, he's saying, you know, well, dialogue is useless. Um, we may have to think about actually intervening in, in uh, Venezuela. Meanwhile, in Brazil, uh, Dilma Rousseff is obviously ousted in this um, parliamentary coup, as it was widely labeled, um, you know, over, over kind of corruption charges by a, 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 a whole coterie of corrupt, of, of extremely corrupt lawmakers. Uh, Almagro, of course, does not take the same stance that he did towards Venezuela. He doesn't, doesn't um, you know, uh, Call for military intervention, certainly, nor does he even take the same sort of verbal condemnation, the sort of undiplomatic uh, talk that he was engaging with in Venezuela. Instead, he, uh, you know, the, I think the OAS expresses concern over what has happened in Brazil, you know. Um, so, very different. Well, it's nice that they're uh, concerned, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're worried. They're, it doesn't look great, but uh, it's too hard, you know, it's too complicated to really say anything more about it. It's too hard to know what exactly is going on. Who can say, you know, in these post uh, post truth times, but um, and and that would be foreshadowed, really, uh, or that that foreshadowed uh, what would uh, happen with Bolivia, and we can talk about that a little later. But uh, Almagro's uh, reaction to what has happened in Bolivia after uh, Morales' ouster is um, very. Uh, it, it's a it's a let's say it's a big contrast to the last few years of what he's been doing in Venezuela. It is, I mean, it is interesting that, that the response, I mean, it's sort of, they don't even pretend. Uh, and I, I think you, you make a good point that it's, it's gotten worse uh, or sort of more lopsided since the Trump administration came to power. I mean, the Trump administration has, has dropped any pretense of, kind of having some ideological basis or, you know, sort of a rational kind of uh, well-meaning basis for its policy toward Latin America. It's if you're on the right, you're cool if and you can do pretty much anything you want. And if you're on the left, it doesn't matter whether you're, uh, you know, sort of abiding by the, the, the norms and rules of the road or not. We will we will work to undermine you and, and get you out of there. Um, and, and sort of, you know, even under the Obama administration, there was this sort of veneer at least of, uh, like, well, we really care about democracy and all these, you know, we, and human rights and ideals with the Trump administration. It's just strictly down the line. Like if you're on the right, it's fine. If you're on the left, no, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I think 
you know, Amagro has just gone along with this, it seems like, or the OIS has gone along with this. You don't hear any uh, discussion, for example, of uh, what's happened in Brazil since Dilma was ousted. I mean, there were these revelations that The Intercept reported uh, that literally, you know, Brazilian prosecutors worked, uh, connived to, to put together a prosecution against Lula to get him out of the way so that Jair Bolsonaro could be elected president. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, you've, you've studied this, this guy, uh, you know, you, you researched him for this piece. Uh, but I, I don't know that the OAS has said anything about that, which is a huge, you know, kind of blaring red flag about democratic norms. Uh, but I don't, I don't, as far as I know, they haven't said anything about it. Um, and, you know, there have been, uh, I don't know what the position on, on the protests in Chile has been or the sort of uh, police brutality that's attended them. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Uh, but you know, this, this sort of, um, he's, he seems to just be going along, uh, with whatever the, the government in power in Washington, uh, wants. And I think, you know, you laid out, uh, a, a rationale for that. So maybe, you know, we can talk about what the OAS's response has been in some other places, we'll get to Bolivia, you know, which is sort of the story of the day. Uh, but, you know, what has it been, if anything, and and why is, you know, why has Almagro gone down this road? And I think, uh, you know, that's something you talk about in the piece. Yeah, well, one uh, possibility, one very strong possibility, Almagro... Uh, when he came in, before he even did his big right turn, um, and, and he did come in, you know, even saying that he wanted to readmit Cuba into the OIS. Uh, he's since um, turned completely against them. I he's think, had second thoughts. Part, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and they've been very critical of him as well, uh, understandably. And I think, you know, and now now he's just sort of reverted to the kind of usual stuff about, you know, what Cuba needs to, the dictatorship needs to stop. Um, uh, mistreating people, yada yada, which is all well and good, but you know, again, um, I mean, it's all true. Cuba does obviously imprison people, but um, it, it's a it's a shift away from his previous diplomatic stance. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, uh, he he wanted to turn the OAS into to, to give it renewed legitimacy and to give it this newfound prominence in the world stage. Um, the problem is that the OAS has also, it's been uh, mined in debt for a very long time uh, because countries haven't been paying their uh, dues, uh, including Venezuela. Um, and who, who knows, they may well uh, also have played into um, some of what Almagro was doing, who knows. Um, but basically, I mean, Restrepo actually said this uh, to a newspaper that, that basically, you know, um, because the... OAS is in, in basically a financial crisis that uh, Magro kind of um, needs to be a little friendlier to the U.S. Uh, because it's it still provides the vast vast majority of its funding, which by the way is not very big. It's it's something like I, I don't want to put a, a figure down here um, and and just say something wrong, but it's it's in the millions, you know. So it's not this isn't like billions and billions of dollars that the U.S. is is giving to to keep the OAS OAS uh, propped up but anyway um and also with the trump administration they had come in uh talking about um cutting uh you know all the money that's spent on organizations like the oas which would have um really set back the organization so i think and those i mean not not only did they come in talking about it but i mean they've sent 
a chilling message. This administration, uh, while I think there's a piece in the Washington Post yesterday that like the Secret Service has paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars to Donald Trump, to his properties, to protect the president when he goes golfing, uh, despite its you know kind of uh, willingness to spend <laughs> pro- prolifically on those kinds of things. Uh, they have been uh, they have shown clearly that they are prepared to pinch pennies when it comes to organizations that do work they don't like. Uh, they defunded the U.N. Relief and Works Agency, uh, which is the the main U.N. organization for dealing with Palestinian refugees. Uh, you know, that's the big one. And I think was sort of the shot across the bow uh, to anybody like we will just pull your funding if you don't toe the line. Uh, and it's it, you know it 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 has to reverberate for an organization like the OAS that that message that you can't help but miss it or you can't help but you know uh, take it in. Yeah, well, in in uh, congressional testimony, one of its uh, well, I can't remember what his exact title, but he was an official in the OAS and he talked about yeah that that it was it was really it was he used the word crisis like the the, the finances were that bad. Um, and basically what that was going to mean was event, because there was nothing left to cut, it was already so cut down to the bone, um, they were going to have to start cutting stuff. Um, and, the, and the OAS and, and the sort of the different kind of courts and tribunals that it funds, um, those are already very small. They're, 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 they don't have a very large amount of staff or anything. So any further cuts to the OAS really would be debilitating. Um, and you know whether Almagro has any sort of uh, political axe to grind, or if he's just merely being pushed, um, or if he genuinely does want to sort of make the OAS into this um, uh, newly prominent, uh, imp- important kind of organization, um, that's a that's a huge threat to those players, whatever they are, um, and. As far as his uh, the OAS's reactions to other other crises happening, I mean, I, I uh, don't know exactly what his response has been to, to Chile, uh, for example. But you know, in, in you, you mentioned uh, Lula's imprisonment, and in Brazil in 2016 and 2017, he was saying, you know, the the Lava Hato investigations are completely above board, and they need to continue. They need to to keep going. Um, as far as I know, I, he hasn't said anything um, about uh, Lula being freed or any of these intercept disclosures. Um, I, I may be wrong about that. People can check out his, his Twitter feed. But nothing, if he has said something, it hasn't been anything of, of great prominence, I don't think. Um, it, it's, it seems like the, uh, you know, Almagro and the Trump administration is most animated about um, things like, election irregularities and corruption when it goes in a certain direction. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, exactly. There's there's just the one. The, the, they're only, the, they have the one lens through which they view all this stuff. Mm. <laughs> well, and also, uh, like, for example, to give you give you a sort of instance of how of the, of the U.S. or the Trump administration kind of uh, using the OAS to, to get its way in, in different scenarios, uh, so, for example, in 2017, Honduras uh, held an election where they uh, basically overturned the result because it was bad for the ruling um, government, uh, which is a right-wing government. Uh, the OAS, you know, 
said something about irregularities and so on, and they offered to send people in um, to to count it uh, or to, to to audit the uh, election. But the Trump administration just recognised the um, the the new government, uh, right? Well, not the new government, but the the, the right wing government, and, and said everything was hunky dory. And so that vote in the OAS never actually happened, um, and that result was never audited. So you know, it's not as if the OAS is a completely um, like ideological uh, body. Um, it, you know, it, it still does condemn uh, election shenanigans in other countries, even when it's not maybe convenient for the Trump administration. But the Trump administration and the U.S. government more broadly, they they will they'll sort of pick and choose what they want to make an issue out of, right? So the Honduran election was fine, but the uh, the Bolivian election, that, that one was you know, clear uh, election stealing and, and uh, the president has to resign. So, uh, we, yeah, we said we were going to talk about uh, what the OAS has had to say since Morales uh, resigned under pressure. Uh, on November 10th. Uh, the, I mean, the situation in Bolivia since then has been, uh, you've seen protests mostly by uh, Morales supporters, indigenous people, um, you know, coca farmers uh, who have, you know, marched on La Paz, marched in uh, El Alto, uh, and been pretty brutally treated by Bolivian security forces. Uh, there have been disturbing images of uh, you know, uh, Bra- uh, Bolivian police officers cutting the Wifala flag, which is supposed to symbolize uh, Bolivia's indigenous population, kind of cutting that out of their uh, off of the patches that they wear in their uniform. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, it's been the involvement of of some very right wing figures, not just Anya's, but uh, uh, Luis Camacho, the the sort of hard right religious Christianist guy who came out of nowhere and suddenly has become a very prominent figure in the new uh, administration or in the new sort of uh, uh, ruling elite, I guess. Uh, um, And, you know, people are getting killed. Uh, The death toll is somewhere around 30 now. Uh, Most or all of them Morales supporters who have been killed by police and and, uh, the Bolivian military. Uh, what what has the OAS and as I said earlier, the you know, Anya's has come into to power and uh, you know she's kicked all the Venezuelan officials and Cuban doctors out of the country. Uh, she's been even more kind of heavy-handed about this than Jair Bolsonaro was in Brazil, where at least he was savvy enough to kind of instead of just kicking all the, the Cuban doctors out of the country, he created a condition whereby Cuba had to withdraw them instead. Uh, you know, which was at least a little more sophisticated than what Anya's has done. Uh, but she's just sort of like the, the masks are coming off. Um, you know, she's overstepping, I think, what anybody, even people who supported the, the action to get rid of Morales, uh, would have to agree was her mandate, which was just, uh, you know, as this like last in the line of succession interim president to organize a new election and get a legitimate government in place. Uh, she's overstepping that. What has the the OAS's response been uh, to to all of these developments? 
Yeah, and before I go into that, uh, I also just want to add, you know, not only was this a coup that brought this government to power, but, and, and I'm not an uh, expert on the ability in constitutional law, uh, people may be, may be shocked to learn, but um, from what I understand, I mean, uh, Anya didn't even have, um, uh, so she wasn't even in the line of succession to, uh, to, to uh, become president. She was, I think, president of the Senate. She was um, the the deputy. She was the vice president of the Senate. So uh, when Morales resigned, uh, everybody in the line of succession pretty much resigned with him, uh, which again kind of signaled that there was something going on here besides just <laughs> saving Bolivian democracy. Uh, but you know, all of them were were in his movement for socialism party. So his vice president resigned. Uh, the the president of the Senate resigned and the head of the Chamber of Deputies resigned. So there's all the guys, all the people who were uh, Im- immediately, you know, in the line of succession. Anya's was, I think, the deputy leader of the Senate, the deputy president of the Senate, uh, and kind of assumed control as the 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 next person standing or you know last person standing, as the case may be. Uh, and she appointed herself. She basically announced that she was president. Uh, the Congress met to uh, both accept Morales' resignation and appoint her officially as interim president. Uh, but the Movement for Socialism Party, which has majorities in both houses, refused to attend that session. So it didn't have a quorum. Uh, they did it anyway. Uh, but, you know, it's, an, it's not an official vote without a quorum, obviously. Uh, but then I think Bolivia's highest court ruled that uh, she was she's within her uh were within sort of uh, constitutional limits uh, to have assumed the office in the absence of, of anybody else. Uh, so she's on somewhat sustainable ground in, in asserting uh, that she's president. But, you know, again, I've you know, said several times here, uh, she's got one job, which is to organize an election and fix the political mess. And she's gone well beyond that in, in, in several instances or in, on several, in several areas. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, the, the fact that she's even doing this is, is kind of dubious anyway, maybe not completely, but uh, I mean, on a similar level to, I think what uh, happened in Venezuela uh, under Maduro, when um, the Supreme court, for example, um, invalidated a few uh, newly elected opposition um, uh, national assembly members from from being able to to, to stand in the national assembly um, because there had been election well uh, alleged election fraud or irregularities or what have you in that election. So I mean, and then on that occasion, for example, Almagro and and much of the West uh, just uh, deemed Maduro a, a dictator and you know someone who had to go. Um, here we're seeing maybe not as questionable, but certainly similarly questionable uh, maneuvers being made, and and yet there isn't the same sort of outcry. But um, even beyond that, yeah, as you say, there was there was uh, there were obviously the nine uh, dead in, in Cochabamba um, that happened uh, not long after Morales' uh, ouster, um, and I actually I you know I, I was writing this piece as that was happening, and obviously things have been moving so quickly, and because I, I wanted to see. What has Almagro actually, is, that, is he going to say anything about this? I mean, you know, the violent repression of protests, is, this had once been an occasion for him to, to, to one, wax lyrical towards one of um, a, a, a coup plotter who was in jail, 
but also to sort of make, you know call uh, the the ruler presiding over this violence uh, a little tyrant or a dictator and, and a traitor to the people and and make all these kind of very very poetic uh, statements about about the you know, the fight um, among uh, ordinary demonstrators versus a, a repressive government. So surely you would you would think the same sort of thing thing is going to happen here um, now that the interim Bolivian government uh, appears to be presiding over over some very violent repression um, of its own people. Uh, and of course, no, you didn't get any of that. You had, uh, in fact, the day that this was happening, um, Almagro put out a tweet. Uh, saying that he had met with Anya's and that they had had a conversation and that they they were reiterating the call, uh, quote, uh, for the pacification of the country. Um, so this is what Almagro was doing on the day that the uh, Bolivian military and, and police were, um, were were just violently cracking down on um, pro-Morales pro protesters. Uh, I waited to see if he would say anything else. Uh, that tweet was later followed by uh, a tweet condemning Cuba and Cuba's repression of its people and um, and its uh, denial of freedom of speech. Um, around the same time, I believe the uh, one of the new Bolivian ministers was saying that they would um, take a uh, they would prosecute journalists um, that were you know alleged to be spreading false information. They would prosecute them for sedition. Um, apparently, this was not enough for Margaret to comment on anything. Um, then the day after this, he actually had an interview um, uh, with, with an outlet, and he basically blamed Morales for what was happening in Bolivia. He said, you know, well, he should have, he should have just uh, stepped down, you know, but he, but he decided to throw it all away by having another run. Um, and what's particularly no notable about this, besides the fact that it's not saying anything about um, the, the violence that's happening, the violence and, and increasingly repressive nature of this new government, this new coup um, brought government in Bolivia, um, is the fact that uh, Almagro had actually backed uh, Morales when he had run, uh, when, when he had decided to, to have a, a uh, try at, a, at an, another presidential um, term, you know, even, even though he was violating the 2016 um, uh, referendum, um, Almagro said you know, it would be, uh, quote, absolutely discriminatory, uh, end quote, for him to not be able to run again. Um, <laughs> and yet now, yeah, and which was actually surprising at the time because Bolivia and, and Almagro and the OAS had had a bit of a testy relationship. They were very critical of him because of his actions in Venezuela, and I think we can, we can see why, um, you know, because... Quite rightly, they could. Uh, they they saw that uh, this exact kind of thing could be leveraged against uh, Morales' government. But they were very critical of him. They they had um, even said that he should resign uh, very early on because of a, a report he put out about um, uh, you know, the, the Venezuelan um, elections uh, back in twenty sixteen. Um, so people were surprised that he had backed him, and and yeah, he did. He publicly said that. Yeah, he should be able to run again, and then now he's just changing his tune. Um, so it's it's again one of these things where it's tough to know exactly it's tough to know exactly what motivates Almagro and what he's actually really after. Uh, and it seems to be a combination of things. But um, but we can say one thing for sure: it's definitely not he's definitely not after a sort of 
consistent uh, stance on democracy and human rights. Uh, that seems to interest him less than sort of, um, well, uh, it interests him less when it's certain governments doing the uh, the repressing and the uh, anti-democracy right. stuff. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you mentioned, you know, he hasn't had anything to say about uh the the you know the coup government has talked about rounding up journalists they've talked about rounding up uh politicians they've talked about rounding up members Ooh. of the MAS uh you know for on on sort of bogus charges of sedition uh Anya's issued a, a decree that that they're now talking about withdrawing as sort of a uh, an olive branch to the opposition but she issued a decree uh, basically giving impunity to the security forces if they kill somebody you know putting down these protests it's okay uh, I mean, it's just been, you know, there's been a number of decisions that this government has taken in its very short time uh, in power that you would think, right? I mean, uh, an organization that's sort of interested in democracy and human rights would have something to say uh, about these things. And yet uh, the OAS has not. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it's sort of uh, everything goes in one direction at this point uh, for for these guys. Is there anything happening in Washington other than, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what's the what's the sort of d talk in Washington about the OAS? Is there anybody uh, who, you know, sees this organization as legitimate? I mean, in either party uh, or is it all sort of just how can we use this organization as a tool of what is, you know, has always been, whether there's Democrat, you know, Democrat in office or Republican in office has always been this sort of uh, right of center consensus view of, of what Latin America should be uh, and, and its relationship to the United States. The uh, U.S. policymakers, uh, I mean, I think legitimate, I don't even know if that really comes into it. I think for them, the calculus is just, we're paying money into this. Why? Why are we not getting more bang for our buck? Basically, um, but I will say that they have been very happy with Almagro, um, and and actually the the sort of right wing uh, commentators and that kind of thing that that initially had expressed alarm all turned around. You know, they they love Almagro now. Um, there's there's a guy called uh, Louis Fleischman who was. He is a uh, scholar, and I <laughs> use that word very loosely, at the uh, think tank, another term that I use extremely loosely, the uh, Center for Security Policy, which is Frank Gaffney's um, organization. And people might remember that as, <laughs> as one of the, um, uh, as this very virulently anti-immigrant uh, organization that Trump had actually cited in an ad um, I believe it was an ad or, or maybe a speech where he used some bogus statistic about, you know, um, migrants um, that, that was incredibly racist and offensive and uh, that he took from, from, from them. So that sort yeah, of gives you Gaffney a little idea. got his start in sort of, he's sort of at the core of the Islamophobia uh, industry in the United States, but he's branched into uh, immigration as well. Yeah. It's good to see him really, you know, trying new things and, it's diversifying. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so he he had been initially alarmed uh, by uh, Almagro's appointment, and then you know years later, uh, and, and at least uh, one attempted coup later, he was saying you know he was the most uh, the the bravest person. He has the most courage uh, in this whole situation. So they love him, and and you know there's uh, 
there, there was this um, congressional hearing about, uh, I can't remember the title uh, at the moment, which is too bad because it, it is, it was something literally titled like how, how do we use the OAS to secure US influence? <laughs> yes, not even, not even really uh, bothering to say the, uh, the, the loud part quiet, but um, where they, they, it, people are, are very complimentary of Omagra. They say, you know, how, this, the tough stance you took in Venezuela is exactly the kind of thing that they've been waiting for. And, um, and this is where uh, there's a, a former OAS um, official who ends up testifying um, in this hearing. And, and you know, there's d different people are asking, like, how, how do we, different sorry, lawmakers are, are asking uh, witnesses, how do we use the OAS? You know, how do we make it so that we actually get what we want out of the OAS? And, and he makes this point about how, well, you know, what you got to do is you really got to like, you have to use like all these different things, uh, whether it's like the these particular human rights courts that, that the OAS funds or, or uh, it's electoral monitors or what have you. Like we have to be able to use um, all these different functions that it has and, and sort of uh, when, it, when it is opportune, kind of um, make use of them to secure US interests. Um, and it's a similar thing that, that uh, another uh, witness says in, in that hearing, there's a... Um, I can't remember his name now. He was actually a Trump supporter until Trump went too hard on the anti-immigrant thing, um, and then he kind of he backed away. But he, you know, in general, he is a uh, a person of the right in the U.S. And uh, he testifies about how there were there was certain um, uh, one of the courts that the OAS funds delivered uh, a ruling a very broad ruling about labor rights that applied to all member states, which he was not happy about. And there was another ruling about um, how OAS governments needed to recognize same-sex marriage um, and, and something else that, you know, something something else that kind of triggered his social conservative uh, gag reflex, I guess. And, and he was not very happy about this. And he says, you know, well, we need to, we, we do fund the OAS. Uh, we need to be able to use that to be able to tell the OAS that they can't just uh, hire kind of activists as, as judges and stuff. They have to have political neutral people. So you, you already see, and this is in, I think maybe 2017, 2018, I can't remember the exact date now, but there's an open discussion among um, the, the, the halls of power in Washington about um, how the U.S. and, uh, well, how U.S. funding of the OAS can be used to exert influence and, and go after U.S. interests, and also about how these different functions of the OAS can be used by the U.S. to get rewards, which we end up seeing in Bolivia shortly after. So, uh, yeah, Washington's been very happy with Almagro, which is why they're actually backing him to uh, run for another five-year term uh, when his current term expires in May 2020. Incidentally, uh, one of the countries that's not supporting Almagro's um, uh, election, re-election, is Uruguay, uh, which is being headed by the same broad front that Almagro came out of. Um, but the Uruguayan president has very tactfully kind of uh, said, "Well, no, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to back his, uh, we're not going to do anything to sort of help him get re-elected." Um, so that that's an interesting development. It's, it's Washington that's backing this guy's uh, re-election, but not his actual country. <laughs> well, with the, I mean, you know, with the end of the, the pink tide or the sort of waning of the pink tide, probably, uh, I would think he'll be, he'll be likely to get 
reelected. I mean, there are enough governments that are friendly to the Trump administration now that will do reliably do their bidding uh, if they want this guy to to remain in in office. Um, but it's that that is sort of telling that his own <laughs> government doesn't want him to stay uh, as the head of yeah, the US. I mean, how, how often does that happen? Like, no, we really don't want our guy to <laughs> continue to be <laughs> running this important international organization. We'd rather not. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the other thing to, to note there is that um, the broad front uh, is no longer being led by Milica, who was, uh, I think, much more of a pink tighter than his predecessor, uh, uh, Vasquez, who, who is now actually, he's, he's back in the saddle. And Vasquez is seen as more of a moderate, uh, both domestically and in foreign policy. Um, and yet, even he thinks that Almagro uh, has, has gone too far, obviously. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, Braco Marcetic, uh, the piece is that in these times, it's called How the Leader of the OAS Became a Right-Wing Hawk and Paved the Way for Bolivia's Coup. Uh, I'll put a link uh, to the piece in the, the show description. Uh, but thank you once again for being on the show. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, thanks for uh, helping shed some light on the OAS and, and what it's doing these days. Always a pleasure. I want to thank Branko Marcetic again for coming on the show, uh, helping us to uh, understand what, again, I think is one of the lesser discussed facets of the, the, the Bolivia situation and really kind of an ongoing issue in terms of international affairs in Latin America, uh, the sort of co-opting of the OAS by uh, the American right or really the American foreign policy establishment. Uh, I will post a link to his piece in the show description. And uh, until next time, as always, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.